Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Hello, everyone. We're here with Gornot Wagner, or Wagner, who is a climate economist at Columbia Business School. Prior to joining Columbia, Wagner taught at Harvard and at NYU. He worked at the Environmental Defense Fund and was the founding executive director of Harvard's Solar Geoengineering Research Program. He is the author of four books. His most recent book in English, which is amazing, is Geoengineering, The Gamble, which provides a balanced stake on the possible benefits and risks of solar geoengineering. And there's the book. Thank you, Gernot. Wagner holds advanced degrees from Harvard and Stanford in economics and government. Gernot, thank you for joining us. And first, could you just talk us through your life and career? How did you get interested in studying climate? Hi, thanks for having me. And frankly, I have never done anything else in my life. So, you know, had we had this conversation 20 years ago, there's always the first question not too long ago was always around pick your side, right? Like you can't do both. You're a, what, a climate economist? You know, you're either sort of, you know, full of birds and bees on the one hand, or you, you know, you know about interest rates, unemployment rates, and so on and so forth, right? Okay. And I can tell you, you know, that has changed quite dramatically, right? Sort of, I'd like to think I haven't changed, the world has changed, come around to this point of view, which is basically, look, the problem is misguided market forces. And we've known mm -hmm. that forever, essentially, or I think we've known that forever. And the solution is very much a climate economic one. It is channeling market forces from the high carbon, low efficiency pathway we are still on, onto a low carbon, high efficiency. And just to continue on this question a little bit, do you think the circle can be squared or the square can be circled, whatever the expression is, that <laughs> we can have market forces and planetary benefits that they can I, coincide? Okay. I mean, look, okay, not to be too philosophical, but what are markets? No, please, please right? be. I mean, it's basically... Like it's our, you know, our wishes and hopes and dreams and opportunities we'd like to provide for our children and so on and so forth, right? And sort of in the best of all worlds, the market, right, is simply a tool, an instrument to channel that sort of stuff into a productive direction. Now, just to be clear, right, and this, of course, gets political very, very quickly, what we have right now is anything but a free market, right? You can't, you can't have a free market if there are externalities, right? I mean, that's sort of the, you know, sort of econ 101, right? Like if what I do all day long is internalize the profits, the benefits, while socializing the costs, the risks, and of course, with climate change that is happening in a huge way, that's not a free market, right? That's not market forces no. doing what they're supposed to be doing. This is essentially channeling stuff in the absolute wrong direction. And what we have to do is price climate risk, biodiversity right. risk, and so on, all these risks properly, A, and then B, compel, force market participants to internalize those risks because otherwise, you know, otherwise we have sort of cost socialism, right? We, we privatize right. the benefits and we let society pick up the, the bill. 
Got it. And we will almost certainly come back to this in, in our conversation. What you just said is very near and dear to our hearts. Let's start with, with the most recent book, with Geoengineering the Gamble, which you showed us just now. You make a distinction at the beginning between carbon capture technologies and solar engineering that comes down to the so-called free driver effect, which has important consequences for research on geoengineering. I hope we got that all right. Could you describe the free driver effect for our listeners? Have you received any critiques of that concept and how do you address it? Okay, so actually to back up a little bit more, right? The problem we are in, the climate problem, can, instead of in somewhat reductionist terms, but I think appropriately so, be described as a free rider problem. What does mm -hmm. that mean, right? There's 8 billion of us. And we are all free riders on this lovely planet of ours where we are simply not paying for the full cost of our actions. Right? I, I really that's, like that articulation. That, that's the problem, right? And, you know, this is you yeah, know, standard is. Econ 101 type stuff, right? And, you know, this free driver although, although, phrase. Although I went to university 200 years ago, they did not <laughs> teach us this in Econ 101. Interesting. Okay. So, um, so actually, okay. Uh, there we go, right? Yet another example of, in some sense, how the world has changed, right? In the sense of, look, if you don't teach that stuff in the first day of the first econ class, yes. then you're not doing an appropriate job as the teacher, right? Essentially saying, look, there are market forces to be channeled in the right direction. And in order to do that, we actually have to internalize those externalities. Full stop, right? Okay. Right. Free rider, right? Okay. What is free driver? And credit where credit is due. So the late, great Marty Weitzman, my co-author on a book called Climate Shock. So the two of us coined that term, if you will, in, an, in a foreign policy essay. So um, like a decade or so ago. And yeah, you know, he ran with it in a sort of a, a very formal economic model in a peer-reviewed publication. And then I took it and ran with it in this book, Geoengineering the Gamble. Okay, what's free driver? It's basically the exact opposite for climate the name of the game is for climate policy traditionally how do you motivate more people to do more how do you motivate more people to mitigate more to cut co2 emissions mm -hmm. for solar geoengineering the question in many ways is how do you stop people from doing too much too soon stupidly right or, or not to this distinction between solar geoengineering and carbon removal, carbon removal, right, sucking CO2 out of thin air, is basically expensive medication, right? Sort of we have to cut CO2 emissions, and yeah, we need to suck CO2 out of thin air. And, you know, that sounds expensive energetically and monetarily. So the question is, how do you scale that up? How do you climb the learning curve, slide down the cost curve, scale up the technology, make it less expensive? For solar geoengineering, in many ways, you know, what we know, what we think we know about the topic, the technology, stratospheric aerosols, these sorts of things, is that it is so powerful, so potentially powerful, so cheap, relatively speaking, that, you know, in right. the extreme, it's the free driver effect sort of, it's so cheap that it might as well be free, right? The costs, right. the direct costs of doing it, potentially, mm -hmm basically don't matter. The risks, the uncertainties, they matter a lot, but it's different from the direct costs to those attempting to 
solar geoengineer the planet. Very interesting. And every time you say something, I have nine other questions, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep us moving. How much along. time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we can do one of these every month, and then, then we'll just... You wrote it in the book that geoengineering research should be done by independent scientists and deployment should be initiated by elected leaders. What's your view of the role the private sector has to play in the geoengineering portion of a climate action strategy? And here also, I think it would be interesting to contrast that role between solar geoengineering and carbon capture. I mean, and that is the crucial distinction, right? So on the carbon capture front, the private sector has a huge role to play. Why? And is playing because a role. The, yeah, and it is playing a role, right? And ought to play a much larger role. Why? Because the name of the game is to scale up the technology. Right to you know paraphrase a, a fairly well known VC in this area right it's about speed and scale right actually I'm not we, paraphrasing we, I'm we, directly we, quoting here right we gotta we, speed we, this thing up and we gotta we, scale we don't it. always agree with other VCs uh, I, I do. there we go right okay so yeah right we've got to do a lot more and to do a lot more you need money right. you need investment you basically yep. need right money meeting technology. And the more we do, the cheaper each unit is going to get, right? This is sort of the, you know, the standard story. And yeah, that's, you know, the private sector has an enormous role to play. Now, the public sector has an enormous role to play in terms of subsidies and so on. And by the way, the public sector has an enormous role to play to avoid having carbon removal, carbon capture, be basically a distraction from cutting CO2 emissions in the first place. Right. That's right. key too. Right. right. Like we can't right. basically say, you know, twiddle our thumbs. Oh, la, la, la. Right. Gonna, don't, don't have to put up a solar panel because we're going to be able to suck it out eventually anyways. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a problem. That's a real problem. Or it will be a problem for solar geoengineering. You know, I guess the, the harsh way of putting it is there's basically no role for the private sector. I mean, you know, at some point, right. Like maybe, of course, but this is not a technology that back to this free driver effect that is in any way, shape, or form costly enough to warrant us worrying about driving down the costs, right? I mean, there, there might be many problems with solar geoengineering, but they are not related to the thing itself being too costly. There are things like risks to worry about. There are lots and lots of other factors at play that make it very much a public policy problem, a public policy issue, and one where scientists have a real role to play, but basically as, you know, as researchers, publishing peer-reviewed publications, open, transparent, and so on and so forth, publicly funded research that is very different from basically saying, right, we've got to scale up this technology and there is, you know, a role for investors to play in the private sector. That's very helpful. That's the best explanation I've heard yet. So thank you for that. So we've talked the only one I've lot. got, so you know, I can't, 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 can't great, give you another one. Well, it's a great one, and more people need to know about it, which is where <laughs> we will help. So we've talked about geoengineering, but you've also written quite eloquently about the need for individual behavior change in publications. And you've walked the walk, or rather, to put it, put it differently, you have biked the bike. We understand that you moved from Boston to New York by bicycle. 
And <laughs> I, okay, so I mean, yes, but actually, that might be a great example of all of this, right? Which is okay. Did I do this for climate reasons? No, come on, right? Of course not. So tell us right? about it. Well, okay, here's me. I'm actually literally sitting in my apartment here right now. Uh, welcome okay. to my 700 and well, our 750 square feet in Lower Manhattan, third floor walker up, and no, I don't have a driver's license, right? Okay. So. Uh, <laughs> There is, and I've never driven, right? <laughs> Which, by the way, okay, so as often, right, so these stories are, they sound a lot better after the fact, right, once you make them all <laughs> logical, right? So, frankly, the real reason why I didn't get a driver's license back then was I left Austria for college in the States when I was 18, right, after high school. Right. And right. in Austria, you can get a driver's license once you turn 18, while okay. in the States, right, you get your license as, I don't know, 16, 17-year-old or so, right? right? So I was too young to do it in Austria. I was too old to do it in the States. You know, then college, grad school, and the rest, right? And then, and then life happens, right? And I've only ever lived in cities. Don't ask me about the year at Stanford. There was a bit of a pain in the butt. But otherwise, right. yeah, I've just never driven, right? Look, this sort of encapsulates one of the, I would say, bigger questions in all of this which is climate tech mm -hmm. and or systemic lifestyle broader changes right yep. well to maybe yep. to put it more concretely look cities cut carbon right. right the the average city dweller again welcome to my 750 square feet right yep. we just you know we have a smaller footprint by definition yep. right like you know doesn't matter how rich you are if you live in a city, all else equal, you will have fewer square feet at your disposal, square meters, no than no same wealth, same investments outside a city. Okay, so some of this, of course, is by choice, right? And so often, of course, right, these individual questions are uh, most directly or only really apply to those who have the choice in the first place, right? Like, you know, just to be clear, right, this is not a question for... Frankly, lots of people who sadly don't have the choice were, in some sense, it is society, it is policy that guides, or for the matter, locks us into inferior choices where, you know, we, ought, we as society ought to do better and allow people to live to closer to those. work and so on yep. and so forth, right? But then, yeah, right? Sort of personal example, right? For somebody rich enough, relatively rich enough to have the choice where basically the choice is, okay, look, do I live in a smaller place in the city? Right. Or do I, you know, live in a, whatever it is, three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bathroom, detached colonial out somewhere in New Jersey, right? right? Not to make fun of Jerseyites, that would be my Twitter feed. What? Why um, not? Why not? But, well, actually, why not? Exactly, right? So welcome to my Twitter feed. Yeah, right? That's, you know, make fun of Bourbonites all day long. Because it is a pathetic lifestyle, just to be clear, You're right? right? I, I you, not agree with you more. You basically maximize your square feet... Basically, at the exclusion of everything else in your life, quite literally, right? You sacrifice yep. breakfast and dinner with your kids mm -hmm. in order to give your 14-year-old her own bedroom and her own bathroom, who, right. by the way, hates you because she can't <laughs> visit her friends without you driving her around, right? Um, and it's sort of... So this, well. 
<laughs> uh, no, but basically, okay. So again, right? This is the slightly, the, the slightly over the top description here. Uh, on the other no, hand, it no, but but this is this question now of right. We are as a society and have been right in the U.S. for decades. Essentially, we are even getting the language wrong. So every right. home under fourteen hundred square feet, right, is called a starter home. It's right. the sort of thing that right, the real estate agent sells you or encourages you to buy and basically is gleeful about you buying the small house because she knows you will be back in five years because you need a bigger home. And that's sort of what you do, right? That's just the life. That's the norm. And it's sort of unimaginable that you like your kids enough to want to live in a small enough space to actually have them around to cook at, at night, right? Every day. Like, right. It's sort of, it's this sort of stuff where society writ large, right, is pushing us in a direction. You know, there's, I'm an economist, right? So don't talk to a sociologist why this is the case. Talk to psychologists and so on. Economists will basically say, because we are not pricing things properly in a sense, right? So we are subsidizing bourbonites left and right, by providing cheap or free parking in cities, by basically subsidizing the burps, right? Subsidizing right. suburbanization and have been doing it for way too long. And of course, a big part of this is we are not pricing climate risk, climate right. damages properly, right? Because if we did, yeah, more square feet would cost a lot more. And Absolutely. we would, you know, be encouraged to live more efficiently, right? I mean, efficiency isn't isn't bad per se, but of course, it creates these sorts of tensions. And, you know, now we are back to market forces, right? Where essentially, at what point is more, is sort of the, you know, channeling of the desire to have more, in fact, inappropriately much, right? Like basically, at what point is sort of, does maximizing your square feet or wanting more square feet actually butt heads against all these other priorities where we well, are no longer optimizing our lives, but we are simply maximizing square feet because, you know, society tells us that's what you should be doing. Okay. This is one of my all-time favorite topics, and I'm, <laughs> I'm resisting spending the Making fun of urbanites? Okay. <laughs> just, just this idea that we, we perform wealth by acquiring square feet, and it's yes. just... The, this as a norm, it's a norm, right? It's yeah, an old norm, course, yeah. but it's a norm and it can and it kind of has to change. But let me push us along. <laughs> so both behavior change and geoengineering can sometimes be controversial in public discourse and sometimes can be viewed as either or solutions, right? You either do that. We all change or yep. we intervene in a fairly dramatic way. So the question is actually related to climate communication. And the question is, can we be doing a better job of how we communicate climate action and solutions to the public? And if so, what does that better job entail? Yes. And I wish I knew. As so often, right? So the, the key thing here is finding your own balance between climate tech on the one hand, right? The fancy new gadget, the heat pump, the induction stove, the electric vehicle, uh, that on the one hand. And personal change, behavioral change, and so on. And to be clear, right, the lifestyle change type stuff is hard. It just is. So when I speak it, to my little really Twitter bubble, right, and basically make fun of Bourbonites all day long, like, 
I realize, you know, I'm not picking up the Bourbonite where they are, right? I'm making fun of them, right? I'm picking up the Urbanite, the Yimby, where I think they are. You know, that's a choice, of course, on my part. And, of you know, just to be clear, you could also say, look, this is just me making myself feel good about my measly life, right? So I'm stuck here in my 750 square feet. I'm making fun of the people with the six bedrooms, right? This is my <laughs> digression. My digression is I find myself in many settings where I'm talking to pretty affluent people. And I have a gathering this evening. It's a group of affluent people in a very large house. And it is a gathering about climate. We have a pretty well-known academic speaking at that mm-hmm. gathering about climate. I'm introducing him, and so I have kind of an MC role. I can't shame my host. And so I am yet to figure out my own lexicon. It's, and I can point to changes I've made in my own sure. life and lifestyle, but this is really it, hard. It, it is, right? And it's basically, okay, it is, you know, in part it is, we do associate more square feet with wealth. And in some sense, okay, actually, like to think about it is, we try to optimize so much, and like basically economics is all about optimizing your lot in life given constraints. In some sense, you know, that sort of model works pretty well in general, right? Like this is how we spend our time, right? Like how do you divvy up your 24 hours, right? It's about optimization. Meanwhile, we have basically enabled by fossil fuels, enabled by basically the last few decades of, you know, sort of increasing wealth and so on, we have left that framework for real estate, where it's basically about maximizing, not optimizing. Okay, Gernot, final question. In one of your columns of Bloomberg, you write, it's hard to point to the adage that any crisis equals opportunity. We're still very much in the crisis part in more ways than one. How do we get to the opportunity phase and what is it going to look like once we're there? Let me give you the most optimistic answer I can muster, which is I wrote these lines in the Pre-Inflation Reduction Act world. Yes. We just passed the most ambitious climate law ever. You know, is that it? No, we didn't solve it, right? But yeah, it's, you know, this act could very easily be called the Inflation and Carbon Reduction Act of 2022 because it is clearly the U.S. joining this global clean energy race and in some sense, right, doing what, frankly, we ought to do, which is have this race to the top, right, where, you know, the Europeans have been talking about European Union about their 700 billion euro Green New Deal, essentially, you know, forever, right? I mean, for a couple of years by now. And, you know, it hasn't passed yet, right? It's passed out of the European Council and sort of it's being debated in parliaments and so on, right? At the moment, European parliaments, now the US passed its law, well, Europe's going to get its 700 billion investment, right? And then it's going to be the US and there's China and India and Brazil and so on and so forth, right? And, you know, that's the very hopeful version Frankly, the pithy five-word answer is, it's too late for pessimism. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. We're going to use I mean, that all over it, I mean, just, just to be clear, right, it says, it, five word, it says in five words what usually takes me five paragraphs to explain, right, which is sort of the, I mean, yes, it is getting worse. It is, right? And right. we are still losing the race against unmitigated climate change. 
But yeah, this is now, frankly, the race between positive socioeconomic tipping points on the one hand versus negative climatic tipping points. And yeah, too late for pessimism. I love it. We don't always end these interviews on a joyous note. That is a very joyous note to end. And we're going to stop here. I want to thank you, Gurnett. Thank you. And for being so, so wise and so forthcoming. And thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas. And visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information. Thank you.